If you have a Bible, will you please open it with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel 19. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 40 today. But before we do that, let us together pray. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious morning in which we gather together as your people to hear your word. We pray that you would open it before us now, Lord, and that you would cleanse and purify, that you would comfort and quiet our hearts, that you would feed us, Lord, from your word. Man doesn't live on bread alone. And so we are here, Lord, because we have tasted and we know that you are good. And we pray that you would give us that good food this morning. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. Now, Within a few weeks, what we've seen in the last couple of, of sermons, within a few weeks, a great deal of harm has been done by Absalom's rebellion. And what David needs to do now is exhibit a great deal of skill in rebuilding the confidence between the king and his subjects. Absalom, the king's oldest living son, is now dead. The battle has cost 20,000 Israelite lives, and David remains in exile. David's return to Jerusalem is marked by continuing strife and conflict all over Israel. The return now is going to be broken into two portions before us in the text this morning, how David deals with his personal loyalties and betrayals, and then how David deals with having lost the hearts of the men of Israel. This is what's happened. If we recall from 2 Samuel chapter 15, what happened was Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel by, by saying that there is no king that will, that will judge you like I will judge you. He would ask them what tribe they were from, and he, would give, he, would, he implied that the king was giving preferential treatment to the, to the tribe of Judah at the expense of all the others, and he stole their hearts. So 20,000 people may be dead, Absalom may be no more, but he has lost the hearts of Israel. And so now he must regain them. And this is David, right? So David is just going to do some grand gesture. He's going to kill a giant. <laughs> right? He's going to call all Israel together, and he's going to make a fool of himself in front of the ark. He's going to do some grand thing, isn't he? To win back all the people, to restore their confidence in him. He doesn't. He doesn't. And this is where we see the real effect of his sin. He is not the same king. He has is, he is lost a great deal of his reason. He's lost a great deal of his wisdom. And he begins to act very foolishly. Absalom stole the hearts of Israel by implying that David favored the tribe of Judah. And now that he has defeated Absalom, David must win them back. But what he's going to do is, is, is prove Absalom's charge. He's going to act in such a way that everyone watching him says, yes, he does clearly give preferential treatment to Judah. Everything that Absalom said about him is true. Now, the point of this chapter is David's return to the throne, in which there are many practical political problems. And here's just a few. Will David be able to regain Israel's confidence and love? How will he deal with the traitors? Will David return and restore his allies to positions of leadership? Are they going to now be ruled by foreigners because foreigners were the only ones that gave him aid? Will David unleash harsh reprisals against his adversaries? Will David act wisely as he did when he first became king to heal the divisions within the nation? Now, what we see before us is 2 Samuel 19, 8 through 16, deals with who takes the lead in bringing David back. 
Who is actually going to get David out of exile and bring him back? 2 Samuel 19.16-38 deals with how David deals with his own personal betrayals and loyalties. A series of people come before him who, who have personally either helped him or were disloyal to him, and he's going to deal with them. Okay, so you have who's bringing him back, and then you have these personal situations that he's going to um, work through, and, by, and how he does that tells us a great deal about how he's going to deal with the whole nation. David's struggles continue, not through overt sins of commission, but through sins of omission. He does not consider how his actions appear. Okay, now we're very used in the Christian life to be told, like, don't worry about appearances. Right? Don't worry about appearances. It doesn't matter how you appear. What matters is your heart. But what we learn from David is that that is actually not true. <laughs> it ca- right? God cares about our heart, but God also cares about how things appear. Christian ethics isn't just a matter of the heart. It begins there, but it works itself out into our actions and how those actions are perceived by others. Now, David wins Judah back through the rhetoric of his words. He wins their hearts back very quickly, but he loses the hearts of the other tribes through the rhetoric of his actions. He stands and he speaks, and and those who hear him in Judah come back to him willingly and quickly. But by his actions, he alienates all the other tribes in Israel, making true Absalom's charge that he has favorites. Now, what happens because of this is that there is a manipulator, a worthless man we're going to see in chapter 20, who, who leads the dissidents against David. There's going to be another rebellion. There's going to be another group of Israelites he has to put down. And it was completely preventable if he simply considered the rhetoric of his actions, the optics of what he is doing and how he is doing it. Now, David is not a man at this point that is above reproach. Okay, above reproach. This is a phrase that we all need to learn, above reproach. Above reproach is the summation of qualified leadership, according to the apostles. In, in the New Testament, when the apostles describe what a man who is going to lead the church, what his qualifications are, they summarize the whole thing by one who is above reproach. Titus chapter 1, verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now, what does this mean to be above reproach? In part, it means to be unaccused. That is, one whose character or conduct is free from any damaging moral or spiritual accusation. Such a man has a clean moral and spiritual reputation. And I know, right, this is modern Christians like, whoa, 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 who cares about my reputation? Well, no, we ought to care a great deal about your reputation. In fact, if you have a bad reputation, you ought not to be in a position of leadership in the church. You have to have a good reputation. You have to have, you got to be the kind of guy that when somebody says, oh, he is a liar, th- those who know you, the-, the conduct of your life makes that absurd. Now, how terrible is it if you had a leader and everybody's like, yeah, man, that guy's a cheat. And all the people, right, say it's a pastor. That pastor is a cheat. And all the people in the church are like, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Now, that kind of guy is not a guy you want in charge of something. Now, David, at this point, right, there is false accusations about him, and his actions do not automatically show how, how untrue those accusations are. Everybody standing around doesn't look at what he's doing and say, oh, he clearly doesn't have favorites. He's not above reproach. He, he's acting in such a way that every, all the tribes of Israel look at him and say, yeah, he does. He does. Being above reproach means that you're 
or in order to lead God's people, means living a holy and blameless life, Philippians 2.15, upon which the world casts a critical eye, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Now, see, the, the world will cast a critical eye. Now, if the world looks at us, okay, they look at us, they look at you, they look at you leading your house, and they say, well, he hates women. Now, if that accusation, right, that accusation is proven or disproven by the conduct of your life, we will be accused of all kinds of things. And most of the time, when it's, when it's the world against Christians, it's, it's full of lies. And, and so what we must do is live the kind of lives that when people say things about us like that, pe- within the community, we say, oh, that's absurd. That's absurd. That guy doesn't hate women. There's no way. Right? There's nothing worse than somebody who's all patriarchy all the time, and I'm actually terrified to put my daughters within, or my wife within 100 feet of this guy's leadership. There are men like this. They're all about it. They sound like us. They talk like us. They, they act like us. And, and really, the women in the, in, who are under their authority are slaves, and someone ought to deliver them. Okay, now, we have got to be the kind of people that when the world will lie about us, it's self-evidently not true. That, that's the kind of people we must be. And what we see in this chapter is that David, right, in previous chapters, um, who was constantly accusing him of things? Saul was constantly accusing him of what? Trying to steal the throne, being a rebel, being all of these things. And through the, his conduct, David proved that those things were lies. And up to, to the point where Saul finally had to be like, yeah, you know, you're righteous and I'm not. Now, David at this point, now Absalom is making an accusation, and David has lost his way, and so the accusation sticks. And that is what's going on in this section, and it's grievous to watch David come to this point. Christian leaders are to set the standard for the whole community to imitate, acting in such a way that when accused, the truthfulness of the matter is self-evident. John Calvin um, he was talking about this qualification about being above reproach, and he explained it this way. By above reproach, he does not mean someone who is free from every fault, for no such man could ever be found, but one marred by no disgrace that diminishes his authority. He should be a man of unblemished reputation. Now, in in dealing with things at the Presbyterian level, this, this this happened to me last year. There was a guy we had to investigate, and we were investigating him not because we actually believed that he was doing something wrong, but because we wanted to clear his name. And it became very quick in that case for us to, all these wild accusations about him, upon talking to his family, his parishioners, we thought, yeah, this stuff is nonsense, what they're saying about him. Why? Because he was a man who lived above reproach. Absalom implied that David was showing preferential treatment towards Judah, and instead of his actions contradicting this, they appear to confirm it. It doesn't appear that David wants the hearts of Israel back because of his careless actions, and this is an important principle in leadership. It's an important principle in the Christian life because appearances matter. Appearances matter. And, and this is important for us if we're trying to create a meaningful community. We either are overly concerned with external appearances or give no thought to the rhetoric of our actions. I I would say most of us fall into one of these two categories, generally speaking. We either are so concerned about how we appear that we're full of fear and we end up actually withdrawing from people and we're not actually loving our neighbor like we should because we're so afraid about how everything is going to be perceived. Or there, there are some among us who could care less. I don't give a fig what people think about me, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do the way I'm going to do it, and they can take it or leave it. Now, either of these two extremes are what we must avoid. 
we have to care about appearances, but we have to only care so much. <laughs> and this is where God always like, he's like, hey, okay, let me, here's what I want you to do. I mean, it's real simple. Okay, you should care about appearances, but don't care about them too much. Okay, go forth and obey. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to need a little more direction here. Right? What do you mean? Um, talk back to a fool in his folly. Don't talk back to a fool in his folly. This is the kind of thing that God does. He tells us to care about two things that seem contradictory at the same time. You should care about how people perceive you. And at the same time, you ought not to care at all about how people perceive you. And, and I think when we get to the end of this story today, I think what, what this section in Samuel teaches us is how to care. Right? How to actually consider the rhetoric of our actions a little bit more carefully so that we can care about the things that we should care about and not care about the things that we shouldn't. So the larger question of David's rhetoric of actions begins with who will recall him from exile? Who is going to bring him back? Who is going to put him on the throne? Is it going to be his favorite? Is his favorite son going to go out and get him? Or is Israel, the whole nation, going to go out and get him? So I'm going to read verses 8 through 14 and then 39 through 40 together because they, they are talking about the same thing. Who is bringing him back and how is that going to look? Now, beginning in verse, actually I'll start in chapter 19, verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came back before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent his message, this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now we go to verse 39, and this is what it says. It says, Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home, and the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Now, Things are quite precarious. Verse 8 echoes the mantra from Judges, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did was what was right in their own way, going their own way. That's what verse 8 is talking about. It was repeated often in Judges. The people just went, went back to their own tents. We're just going to go do our own thing. And that's what's happening here in Israel again. There's disunity. There's an unharmonious confusion laying over the whole nation. Israel lacks coherence and unity. Now, verse 9, it says, in verse 9, some in Israel say that David had delivered them, but now he has fled before Absalom. Verse 10 states that Absalom is now dead. In verse 11, we see the conclusion of these premises, and that someone should bring David back from exile. But there's a lot of confusion in what is said here. As they say, they're arguing amongst one another. 
The use of David's title king shows that they're, they, they're giving him deference. They're not calling him a rebel. They're not, call, they're not saying he's not the king. They clearly want him to be king. They're recognizing him as king. But Israel is clearly confused. There, there is a lot of confusion about the interpretation of events up to this point. One obvious question based on their comments is this. Did they anoint Absalom because David fled? Or did David flee because they anointed Absalom? Now, if you read the story, right, David declares himself, or I'm sorry, Absalom declared himself king and, and, and marched upon the capital, and so David fled. But now as Israel is talking about it amongst themselves, they seem kind of confused about what came first. Did David run away from us, and then so we made Absalom king? Or did we make Absalom king, and then David ran away from us? And it doesn't really answer the question. The reader knows more than the nation of Israel at this point. Absalom had convinced Israel that David's heart had fled from the people. His affections fled before his person fled. So I think it's they're ready to believe that he just ran away because they were already convinced that his heart was not with them. His affections have run away, and now he has run away. That seems to be what is happening. Absalom's coup back in Hebron in chapter 15, 15 seems to be shrouded in some mystery. Do most people not know that he grabbed at the throne and marched on the capital and that David's fled in response? It's very confusing. Now, what we see here is that David is not the same ruler as before the Bathsheba incident. His moral failures have darkened his mind. There is a moral foundation to reason. Failing morally leads to failure of reason. And it's very important that we understand reason and intellect and logic are not, are not neutral. It's not like I, I, I can use logic and I understand things and I, I can reason. And then what you have is, a, is an atheist who reasons the same way. Now, both of us can use our reason. But one of us, right, if one of us is conforming to the image of Christ, our, our reason is going to work better than one who is not being conformed to Christ. And if you don't believe me, we can go down to Fred Meyer, and there is a man wearing a dress, even though he has a beard, and everyone is calling it they, and everybody acts like this is normal. Right? And, have you, and I'm just going to stop. I'm not talking about taking this person out in the center of town square and stoning them. But I'm 43 years old almost. And I, I was just the other day thinking, you know, the, the insane asylum is now run by the inmates. Because we're all standing around while this guy, whatever he wants to call himself, is bagging my groceries, acting like he's a normal human being. And I'm like, now, either, I, I, I was like, it was one of those moments where I was like, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Maybe I am crazy, right? This is one of those, if the accusation sticks, maybe I have other problems. But I started to seriously wonder, like, am I the only one who doesn't think that this is totally bizarre? And what have they done to me where I just see this and I'm like, eh. Right? I mean, I don't want to recoil in horror, but also it's just like, oh, hey. But if you stop and think for a moment about what's going on in the world, tell me that morality and logic are not connected. Right? Let's watch the news. Well, no, don't do that. It's a waste of time. Let's go onto the dark webs and read about the conspiracy theories. They're writing themselves now, by the way. Apparently, we're being invaded by aliens, and, and this is a, really it's supposed to distract us from a giant train that, that crashed and spilled chemicals into the environment. But don't get me started, right? Again, morality and logic. I'm supposed to believe the alien invasion is more important than the fact that the government crashed a, tr crashed a train in Ohio and is literally burning holes in the ozone layer at the moment. But, you know, whatever, <laughs> right? Whatever. Just, just smoke some more pot and play your Xbox. That's what they want. Don't, 
like just let your morality run it run, run rampant don't think too carefully about these things there is a moral element to our reason our reason and our logic it is undergirded it's built on a foundation of, of proper upright morals and, and and the more you obey god and, and follow his will the more you're able to reason and think and, and, and come to the right kinds of conclusions in all kinds of matters. And what we see is that David went down this road of self-indulgent sin, and now he, he has these moments like this one right now where the obvious thing totally eludes him. I mean, this is David. How does David not think, how did I get here? Well, I got here because Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And, and I am the guy of grand gestures. And so now what I'm going to do is have a grand gesture that's going to bring everybody back together. And we're going to hug it out. And we're, all, and we're going to make a covenant. And we're going to go on with our business as Israel because we are Israel. Like, that's what you would expect him to do. But he's not thinking correctly. And he starts to make very bad decisions. And they're not just bad decisions. They look even worse than they are. He does a number of things. The first thing he does is he sends representatives only to the house of Israel, or to the house of Judah. He sends people to Judah, and he calls them bone and flesh. Now, this is an echo, obviously, from Adam. In the garden, it's what he said over his wife Eve. It's a term of, uh, it communicates a, a deep, intimate relation, relationship, an emotional relationship with the people you're speaking to. You are bone and flesh. Right? That's the way uh, the first man spoke to his wife. And so David is talking this way to Judah, not to Israel. He doesn't want representatives from the other tribes. He only wants to talk to Judah. And he says, why aren't you the one who brings me back? You get all the glory. You get all the honor. So what are the other tribes to David? I don't know, but how does it appear? You tell me how does it appear. We're not told what he really thinks. Oftentimes we're not. But how does it appear his relationship towards the other tribes, what, what, what is the nature of that relationship when he doesn't even want to see representatives? Right? Imagine the president calling only Democrats up to, the, uh, up, up to the White House to have a chat. There's a reason they do the dog and pony show where they bring representatives of both parties up there to, to not agree on anything because at least it looks like they're trying for some bipartisanship here. This is not how you do these things. right? Biden runs better photo ops than this. Biden runs better photo ops than this. <laughs> The next thing he does is he, re he removes Joab from leading the military. But why? He doesn't explain why. And so we're, we're left with just, what, what does it look like? Why is he doing this? Joab had just won a huge victory. He secured the throne for David. He is the one who talked him off the cliff from his emotions. And yet, what is David communicating by removing him as the head of the army? Is his removal because he disobeyed David's command to be gentle with Absalom? because he rebuked him for his grief. Now, magnanimously, David replaces Joab with Absalom's general, Amasa, right? So what he did is, oh, I'll take the enemy general who lost, and I'll put him in charge of the army instead of the guy who's done nothing but good for me. And you're like, wait, um, okay, well, that's nice that you're, you're actually not rejecting all the people who rebelled against you. Amasa rebelled, but, now you, but, but why would you replace a failure with, right, replace a successful guy with a failure. What, what, what is going on? And again, we're not told. This grand gesture of reconciliation even, where he's elevating rebels within his own party, isn't really going to win anybody over, because as I said before, most of Israel isn't there to see it. 
So all he's doing is alienating people within the tribe of Judah now. Because what is Joab going to make of this? Joab, who's been a loyal follower, even in the house of Judah, here he is trying to win them over, and he can't even do that correctly. David is on, like, it seems like he's on a willful campaign to alienate as many people as possible. Amasa is a family member. He's related to David's sister. So he's of the house of Judah too. So the whole thing just seems very bizarre. And, 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 and the point is, how does it appear? What is, what is everyone going to think his thoughts about Joab are? What, is, what are they going to think his thoughts about Amasa are? What are they going to think about um, politics within the house of Judah? Now, David is making distinctions, and the rhetoric of his actions, the optics, reinforce the false claims of Absalom and communicate a tangle of things. It's very hard to understand exactly what he's thinking, exactly where he's going, exactly what his plan is, based on these very bizarre moves that he's making. Among the tribes, he clearly has favorites. A moment's reflection would cause him to see how he's gotten here and, and, and what he ought to do about it. But as I said, the David from before the Bathsheba adultery incident would have seen this. But more morality affects reason. Now, if you have a Bible, go with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. When David first became king, there, there was also civil war. There, was, there were tribes fighting against one another. David had been in exile once before. He's been down this road before. This is what I'm saying. He's, he's totally forgotten himself. If you go to chapter 5, we read there, how he handled this moment before. This is not new to him. He's been here before. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Right? All Israel is saying that to David, and now David is only saying it to one tribe. That is very troubling. Verse 2, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So before, when he's trying to win over all of Israel and unite them under one banner, he knows exactly what to do. Well, get me representatives from every group, and they will come forward representing the people, and I will make a covenant with them, and then we will all be together. We all have blood in the game. We all have skin in the game, and you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he has this relationship with all Israel, and now here he is, and he, it's as if that never happened. Right? And this is how many leaders assume, assume future success based on past success. How many leaders, whether you're a father, whether you own a business, whether you are a leader in the church, how often do we just presume that we're going to succeed in the future because we succeeded in the past? Right? Because what we start to do is we start to believe the press. I really am as fantastic as the New York Times says I am. Right? And now I, I'm, I was converted at Mars Hill, and let me tell you about it. Okay? Well, let me tell you what happens when somebody starts to believe the press about themselves. Is, is, is they, for, they forget how they succeeded. And, and like, here's an example from my own, my own situation. I, I, re, I remember Mars Hill. I, I loved it. I love Mark Driscoll. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I have almost nothing but nice things to say about him. Almost. But I recall hearing the story about how the church got started. And as time went on, there were fewer and fewer people involved in the story. 
right? It started out with these three guys, and then about 18 months later, he's telling the story, and there's only two guys. And then about two years later, I heard the story again after I'd loved the church for a while, and then lo and behold, nobody helped him plan it. He did it all by himself. And, and I remember sitting there going, dude, like, I remember things better than you do, my friend. And I remember the fact that you used to tell this story, and there were other people who you, gave, who you thanked God for, who you gave credit to. And, and, and so he went on, right, thinking what? He would go on succeeding always as he had in the past. And he forgot what got him there, right? Jenny from the block forgot how she became famous. And, and this is what happened to him, and this is what happens to a lot of people, not just people over these huge churches, but in your own home. Right? Now, I know some of you guys. I've known some of you guys for a long time. I'm not just picking on the ones I've known for a long time. But I like to remind everybody that, that right, don't, buy, don't, don't believe the press about yourself. I remember how you became so respectable. I was there when you were not respectable, and I see that you were respectable now, and I could name names about how you got here. And so don't go on in life acting like you're going to succeed in the future, like you succeeded in the past, while you forget how you did it. Okay? David has forgotten the tribes of Israel. He's forgotten the elders. He's forgotten his covenant theology. He's forgotten grand gesture. He's forgotten that he is the king of a whole nation. And he's focusing in on this one tribe. And the problem with that is that is exactly the accusation that Absalom made. He's proving that it's true. Whether it was true when it was made, I don't know. Does it appear to be true now? Yes. Yes. And it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Now, how often, how often do you sit down and you actively think, how does this decision I'm going to make, how does this thing I'm going to do, how is this thing I'm going to say, how is it going to appear? Are you aware or not of what people say about you? Now, right, we're modern Christians, so we don't care about all that. You ought to care about that, okay? You ought to care what people think about you, but, but you ought to care in a particular way. It, because what, what's happening here is it's not just a popularity contest. David's actions are alienating people he ought to lead and he ought to love. Now, if your actions alienate your neighbor who hates Christianity anyway, fine, uh, right? I, I reward you. May, may your crown in heaven be huge. But if you're carelessly alienating people in your own community because you're not being careful about the things that you're saying and doing, you have an entirely different problem. And you ought to sit down and you ought to think about it. Now, I know... <laughs> did he just say that? He did just say that, right? And I'm, I'm the one saying it. And, and there, I can tell you right now. And I learned a great I've, I've learned more about this in the last three years than the first seven years that I was an elder. You, you cannot just get, sit down at your typewriter, or I'm sorry, your computer, mixing metaphors, and just be like, you know what, I'm going to tell everyone what I think. Without sitting down and be like, you know, what are, what are people going to think about the fact, what are, how are they going to perceive that I send this email instead of going to them personally? That, that I say, you know, you refer to people, but you don't say who the people are. Right? Is it possible people will be confused? Yes. <laughs> right? and, and if we go along... as whatever position of leadership we're in, assuming we're just going to succeed because we're a success, we're going to fail. Now, that being said, some of you, and, and again, see see what I did there? Some of you, and I know who you are. <laughs> some of you have got to get up from your tables and stop caring so much about what people think. 
Stop trying to consider every word you say, every action you do, right? Because there are two ditches to every road, and we will find the ditch with the car. Some of you have got to just not care anymore. Get up, go out, do the loving thing. There are people who need your love, and you are debilitated from doing it because you're afraid of what people think. And some of you, I love you, are... (laughs) Like, have got to stop and think about what, your, what silence communicates, what your actions communicate. Because you may not say the wrong thing, but you might be doing things that are perceived a certain way that is alienating the very people that you ought not to alienate. And that's what we learned from David. This is why David is so useful. Because he's like Peter. It's, it's, it, we're watching him in real time making decisions. And what he's not doing is sitting down and think, how did I get here? And what could I do to win back these people? Right? A moment reflection would, would actually reveal a great deal to him. But what he's doing instead is leaving David's size hole in the wall, like those old cartoons. Like, oh, there went David. Right? He just crashes through. Now... Now what we're going to do is look at three small instances very quickly of where now David, having no, failed on the grand gesture, is now going to sit down and insult people personally. <laughs> he's insulted the whole nation over here. And now, because that's not enough, he's going to sit down and he's going to insult some people right to their face. And so we look at verses 16 to 38. Verse 16. And Shemai, the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with them were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shemai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty for... Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take its heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shemai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? Oh, do you, David? Do you? Hmm. And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. And your servant is lame and has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak you, or why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now, Barzillai, Barzillai, 
the Gileadite, had come from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very, very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Manhanim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I, that's pretty old if you can't even, anyway. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me. And I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Now, let's just take these one at a time. Shimei, if you recall, was the man waiting for David on the road, throwing dirt on him. Okay? And, and he followed slowly David and his whole team as they're leaving Jerusalem, and he was the one throwing rocks, pretending to um, stone David, and, and his men wanted to cut, chop his head off then. Well, now that David is victorious, here he comes running down the Jordan as fast as he can. What a shocker. Okay? Nothing has changed except now David is on the ascendancy. And what, is da- what, what might David do? We don't know what David's going to do, right? Maybe he's going round to up, round up everyone who insulted him during this rebellion and slaughter them. Nobody knows. And so this guy, obviously, because he's afraid for his life, comes hauling down to the Jordan as fast as he can with the Judites to try to get there as quickly as he can and show some deference to the king. See, this guy, this guy gets it. How is it going to appear if he's one of the first people that greets David when David comes back? It's going to appear like he actually repents. That's how it's going to appear. Shimei arrives just with the Judites and Ziba, who had succeeded in convincing the king of his loyalty through uh, presence, um, he also comes. And so there's, here's David's friends, and, and so he, he, he's arrived at exactly the right moment. Some of David's friends have come, and now here this guy is. See, I want your friends too. And he falls down before the king, and he says what I did was wrong, and, and he's begging mercy of the king. And it looks good. Uh, it looks good. And so, of course, his bloodthirsty, Shemai, his, his bloodthirsty friend, is like, ah, let's chop his head off. And, and what would that prove? That would prove the accusation that he is, in fact, a man of blood, which was what was shouted at him when he was le- leaving Jerusalem before. So here we see that David, is in his right mind, is like, no, 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 get behind me, Satan. It, it sounds very much like David talking to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. We're not going to do this thing. It would be evil and wicked to do this thing. I'm the king of Israel. And, and what this highlights is just how sad the rest of this event is. He recognizes that he is the king of Israel. He recognizes that being magnanimous and merciful and benevolent is a good thing to, to do. So why didn't he go and get all of Israel and do it? David, you're so close. You're so close. Now, Abishai, he doesn't buy it. And, and now what, what David is going to do is he talks to him in a very insulting way. And this insulting way is now going to alienate someone in the house of Judah, just like he already has Joab. And all of that's going to come back and get David later in a way that's very unfortunate. Okay, So David is not himself. David is not thinking through his actions. He, he feels like he needs to make a statement 
And he says, I am king in Israel this day, and we will not do this thing. Well, why does he feel like he has to make that statement? Because he's been led by the, right? He's been led around by the hand by Joab and everybody else. So again, he, he's so close. Yes, you do need to make some definitive statement that you were the king. You get it. So why not do it? Why not do it? So then, and this part really actually saddens me. This is one of the saddest stories right here. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, is so anxious he doesn't even clip his toenails. He's so anxious he doesn't change his clothes. He's so anxious about the king that he doesn't cut his beard. Does it appear, does it appear that he actually is sad and sorrowful about what's happened to David? Yes, yes. It, he, by all appearances, looks like the man who was abandoned by a servant and actually cares about what happens to David. And David's response is what? To, to climb down where he is there, crippled man that he is, like the Lord Christ, and hug him and restore him to his position? No, he says, well, you can, you can have half your stuff back. Now, what kind of statement is that? If it's not a statement that you think he's in some fashion guilty, and David is not thinking through, of all the people, the crippled is the one he should have protected and defended, and, and, and he should have been so far above reproach that when the servant made the original accusation, David should have said, oh, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Now he sees him, he should see, oh, yeah, no, this, false, this is a false accusation. Look at this man. He clearly cares and, and is for me and is on my side. But instead, David says, now, uh, well, I don't know, this is kind of confusing, so, okay, you can have half of it back. And what does that communicate to everybody else? What does that communicate to the rest of the Saulites that are alive? What does that communicate to the other tribes? What does that communicate to his own people? So last but not least, you have an an aged old friend, a Gileadite, and he is the most benevolent towards a foreigner. He shows the most benevolence towards this, David shows the most benevolence towards this Gileadite, who's not even of the house of Israel at all. And so if, I, if I'm reading the newspaper the next day after this occurred, and I see that he's, he's being super generous with all the foreigners that he helped, but he didn't call forth all of the Israelites themselves to join in this, I would be very confused about exactly what it is David is doing and going to do. David, the, the optics on this whole thing couldn't be worse for him. And, and what we're going to see in the next chapter is that they then go to war with him because they think they have no place with him. Now, I'm going to bring this back down to your, your kitchen table as is meat. I want to talk to you about the rhetoric of actions because what we can see here is that David is, is, is relationally careless, that, that he is doing things kind of on the fly. He's not taking counsel. He, he understands that something needs to be done, that he is in fact, but he's not following through with things. Now, how often in your own life are you like David in this chapter? That's the question. How often are you just running through life and you're just doing your thing and you don't really stop and think about at all what you're communicating to your wife, to your children, to your neighbors, to the other people in the community? When's the last time that you sat down and thought, you know, I wonder what my reputation is amongst the people of Redeemer Church? Now, you've been told lies that you should never, ever, ever concern yourself with that. Don't concern yourself with appearances. Who cares about your reputation? But that's false. That's false. God desires us to get our hearts right and then outwardly obey, outwardly um, fulfill the law of God, 
outwardly appear to be his servants, right? He, he wants Israel to look like Israel in the Old Testament. He goes to great lengths to get them to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to be known from a distance as being the people of God. And, and modern Christians think that all of that is pff, whatever. No, people ought to know us, right? They ought to know us by our love. Okay, that's a great sentiment. Fantastic. Let's sing the song. But what does that actually mean? Are you known by your love? Right? And, and I, I, I wonder, honestly, how many of us, I'm going to include myself with you in this particular portion of it, if we sat down and we thought, you know, my reputation amongst the people of Redeemer is X, how accurate would it actually be? We are relationally careless people. That is, that is one of my top concerns with the people of God in North America. We are relationally careless we don't know the one another's, the 33 mutuality commands, right? If you, if you don't know what they are, just get, sit down at a computer and look up the word one another in the New Testament, not the Gospels, the Epistles, and see how many things we're told to do for and to one another. We're supposed to think well of others. We're supposed to greet others. We're supposed to do all kinds of things that outwardly express love. It's not just this thing that dwells deep inside of us in the spiritual realm, and where there's nobody but me and Jesus. Your reputation matters, your actions matter, and they are communicating something whether you want them to or not. Now, we can communicate to our children that we have favorites, can't we? That, that, that makes sense to us. If you think, as your, 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 your responsibility as a parent, think, you could actually communicate to your children that you prefer one of them over the others. You understand how that would work. Well, how does that work? Then are you communicating to people in this church that you have favorites? Right? I, I, I'm, I'm concerned now in my own life, I'll be honest with you, about how I'm communicating to my siblings. I, ha- I, I clearly have favorites. I clearly do. I, I couldn't possibly say I don't. It, but is that the way it should be? Right? Thank God I ask my children on a regular basis, do you guys think that I prefer one of you over the other? Right? And then we, we do the swap a root. Anne, Anne asks when I'm not there so they can be honest. <laughs> and then I ask when she's not there so they can be honest. Right? This is, I have three teenage boys, and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we've entered a nice phase. Because now I sit down when we go on our man camping trip once a year, and I say, okay, boys, does Polly have a favorite girl? Okay? And if they don't, they get a prize. If nobody around you can tell that you have a favorite, you've won. You won the prize that year. Now, what's funny is twice now, we won't name names, right? There are people who are like, it is obvious that they have a favorite. And so we talk about it. Why? What are you doing? What are you communicating? Is that what you're supposed to be doing? Now, this, I'm, this is, I'm the leader here, and so I'm using my family as an example. I love you guys. Don't worry, you'll get ice cream later. <laughs> now, I want you to go home, and I want you to ask one another, if you're married, do, do your children think that you have favorites? If you know people in this church, do people in this church think you have favorites? If you go to work, are, are, you, are you a sweet and gracious Christian who's known by their love? Or are there people there that maybe you're avoiding utterly because you don't want anything to do with them? Now, that, that wisdom dictates. Maybe you do. Maybe you're hanging around some people you shouldn't. But I doubt it. Now, here we go, husbands. If you're only... If, if you only express affections towards your wife in nonverbal ways behind a closed door, what are you possibly communicating to her? 
Now, we, we understand, bam, every husband in here understands exactly what that would look like if you've been married longer than two weeks. Okay, but, but and, and, and that's very personal, and that's in your own home, but do you think that same way ab- about other relationships? Are there people who have no idea that I have any real affection for them? Because the only time I greet them, the only time I say hi to them, the only time I socialize with them is once a week behind a closed door. Well, and I got to, right? You, you kind of can't avoid it once you're all here. Silence is a form of communication. We snub, we alienate, we ignore, we overlook. Maybe we are shy, maybe we're introverts, maybe we are very private people, but we must consider what the long-term effects of our standoffishness is to coworkers, to family members, to siblings, to family, to people in the church. Now, this is one of those things where the example... The, the examples abound in scripture. And I'm going to go back to the life of David. And I'm just going to give you, see, this is why it requires wisdom to understand these things. Remember David dancing before the ark and his wife, Michael, was like, I'm ashamed of you because you're acting like a total moron. And David said, I don't give a fig what you think because I'm dancing before the Lord. I don't care what you think. And, 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 and we're like, yeah, David, amen, brother. It's great. It's fantastic. Don't, if you're worshiping God, just sell yourself out, man. Don't worry about what anyone says. Okay, well, then there's a story earlier where David is standing there with a, a piece of Saul's robe in his hand, and he is extremely concerned about appearances. He, we know at that point, in his heart, he has no malice, and he's concerned by making the point that there's no malice in his heart. He might even accidentally communicate malice towards Saul. And so why over here does he not care a fig about what anybody thinks, but over here he is like sweating profusely, worried about how his actions are going to be perceived by others. And this is only a shadow of the great one, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who touched lepers, who ate on the Sabbath, who enjoyed feasting enough to be called a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he didn't care what people thought. Because there's all these man-made rules. There's all these idols that you have. It's all this social standard stuff that has nothing to do with the Bible. And Jesus purposely did things to be confusing. He purposely was, was shouting down those idols and acting in a way that people were going to cause a stir and ask questions. He, he, in, the, in those cases, he didn't care about how he appeared. You want to call me a drunk? Fine, call me a drunk. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to this guy's house and I'm going to hug lepers, and I'm going to preach to women, and I'm going to heal people, and I'm going to do all those things that socially you're not supposed to do. And then other times, he says, hey, hey guys, all right, listen, when you pray, don't pray like those self-righteous prigs who do everything because they're seen in the marketplace. And you're like, well, <laughs> right? And, and, and this is what modern Christians, well, which is it, man? Right? I want an easier life than this. The ethics should not be this hard. Why do you not care what anyone thinks over here? And over here, you're telling us not to act like people who care what people think. Which is it? And, and it's both. It's both. And this is the glorious burden of the Christian life. And so when we're reading the Gospels, what we tend to do is focus a lot on what Jesus says. Right? They'll even make those words in red, just in case you don't miss them. But how often do you read the Gospels and you think, what is Jesus communicating non-verbally? How is he communicating and how is he not communicating non-verbally? How are his actions being perceived? 
Because he reminds me of that old definition of a gentleman. A gentleman is someone who doesn't insult anyone else on accident. Right? If a gentleman's going to insult you, he's going to insult you to your face. What you'll never be is accidentally offended by him. And that is Jesus to a T right there. Right? If, he, if you're offended by him, it's exactly what he meant to do. And so studying the life of Jesus, looking at the, the, the life of our Savior, what you see is who he, he goes out of his way to insult on purpose and who he goes out of his way not to insult even by accident. Now, how many of us, right, right we, we live in an age of rootless evangelicalism that wants to keep things overly simplistic. Your heart, the condition of your heart matters. The perception that your actions have on everyone around you matters. It's not one or the other. There are times where you ought to care a great deal more than you care, and there are times where you've got to get over yourself and stop caring so much what people think. And, 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 and that is not an impossible task. David does it. Jesus does it. And if we read, right, if we want to grow up and how to love one another the way the Lord Jesus loves, right, when he's insulting those who need to be and not insulting those who don't need to be even by accident, this, this is maturity, because he is the mature one. He is love itself. He is sinless. He is perfect. And he doesn't want you to figure this out in your own way. He wants you to grow up and be just like him. That means there are people that you need to insult. That means there are people that you need to stop accidentally insulting. You need to stop caring, in some cases, about what people think. And in other cases, you need to start caring a great deal more about what people think. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. We thank you for the example of David. We thank you for the example of the Lord Christ, who didn't just come to save us from our sins, but came to live out uh, your will in real time that we might, through him, learn what it means to obey you in all things. I pray, Lord, as we go from here, that you would not confound us, that we would not be confused as Israel was confused in David's day, but that you would clearly confront us in our sin, that you would encourage us as, as we're being sanctified, and that we would grow up to full maturity in the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray, and amen.